You're listening to The Big Reviewski on Joe, brought to you by Omniplex Cinemas. Bonus! Feature! Feature! I didn't realize we did it on the F as well. Oh, I can do whatever you want. It's our show, mate. Hello, everybody. You're all very welcome to the latest bonus feature. I can't keep doing that. I know. Of the Big Review Ski. My name is Owen. There is Rory. Hello. And we are delighted to have none other than Mr. Joe Cornish. Not like I keep wanting to say Joe Rice or any Joe, really, because I, I'm bad with names. So it actually is Joe Cornish who's here on the show this week. Um, he's also our big guest in this week's episode of The Big Review Ski. We reviewed his brand new film, The Kid Who Would Be King, on last week's show. So there's lots of Big Review Ski things for you to check out there. Yeah. So please go and do it. Past, present and future. Please. Please go and do it. Oh, God. Please. Oh, listeners, if only you could see the look of desperate Please. longing in Owen's eyes. <laughs> anyway, Joe Cornish is on the show this week. What was he like, Roy? He uh, he was an absolute gent. Uh, people, you know, people come at his uh, career in so many different ways. Like there'd be fans like you who would know him from way back when, from the mm-hmm. Adam and Joe show. Uh, there'd be fans who maybe would only be aware of to date, except for his new movie, the only other movie he's ever directed, which was Attack the Block, kind of a cultish sci-fi horror comedy thriller yeah it was all the genres but it is the film that essentially discovered uh john Boyega, who is in that other little sci-fi film have you ever heard yeah. of i don't think so no yeah. um yeah Show girls in space i wish i wish where are the girls going now? <laughs> they're putting on a show in space tight i'm happy for them they've expanded their horizons uh, yeah, so he's he's also had a hand in the script for The Adventures of Tintin with Spielberg, um, Ant-Man, while his mate Edgar Wright was uh, directing it, and then there was kind of a kerfuffle, and I don't know what the actual story is there, and I, I doubt we'll ever know. But we discussed everything from The Adam and Joe Show to The Kid Who Would Be King and everything in between and everything that might be coming next, so... Like I kid you not, we went from Showgirls to Brexit to Superman to Tintin two to his his friendship with Boyega and uh, Edgar Wright to his uh, opinion on Marvel movies. Uh, like it, it was it was a long chat. Like you you and I both know, and the listeners might know as well that like when we get interviews with uh, famous people or, or anyone working in the industry, it's normally you've. You have about five or six minutes in the Any, room. Anywhere between four to six is a, if they is tell a healthy you, amount of yeah, time. Yeah, if they tell you you've got seven, you're like, Ooh, what? I'm Ooh. being spoiled. Well, excuse me, somebody thinks I'm <laughs> Parkinson. 21 minutes Sweet with Lord. Joe Cornish. So uh, I think that constitutes as a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy for the pair of you. I'm happy that you're happy. Yeah, uh, so obviously it sounds like a fascinating interview, but hey, don't let, don't let, don't let me tell you what that <laughs> interview is like. Why don't you just use your ears and listen to it yourselves, all right? <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks very much, Rory. Uh, happy to hear it. Uh, first question, most important question. What is your honest opinion of Showgirls? Well, I think, like everybody else, I find Showgirls provocative. Sure. Arousing, sure. Shocking, yeah. Exciting, ludicrous. 
I'm a big Verhoeven fan. Massive Verhoeven fan. And I think everything he does is kind of has a streak of satire in it, be it uh, Robocop or Starship Troopers in particular. You know, he's a clever guy. You watch his original movies, uh, Spessers, Soldier of Orange. He's a smart dude. Very smart man. And he made some amazing blockbusters, you know, in, in, in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. Showgirls, he's pushing the envelope of ridiculousness. <laughs> and it'd be interesting, I haven't watched it for years, I don't know how it stands up in the current climate, it's probably pretty awful. Um, you know, in terms of <laughs> the characterizations and the values, and, you know, I, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got some opinions on it. I've, I, there's no other film, um, on, on, we did a big review ski, there's no film that comes up more often for some reason really? than Showgirls. I've no idea why, but it just keeps uh, finding its way into conversation, so... Uh, and I know yourself, you had a, a kind of remake, let's say, of it. We did a like, spoof of it. When, we, yeah. when I used to do the Adam and Joe show, I did a... Adam and I, it was one of the first ones we did, in fact, in the very first series. We did a, a spoof of it about a little fluffy dog yeah. arriving in Vegas. So that's why I had to know what your yeah, actual yeah, yeah. Uh, opinion on Showgirls was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, congratulations on The King Who Would Be King. Thank you I very much. I had a really, really good time enjoying it. Cool. Um, why this movie... After, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a break since, since Attack the Block. Why be yes. like, I, this is the one I need to do next? Well, I had a lot of opportunities after Attack the Block to, you know, I was approached about big studio movies. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel I had the experience to jump in to stuff on that level. And I watched some, you know, colleagues of mine, some of them have tough times on big movies, you know. So by the time I'd finished with Ant-Man, which was about 2014, I figured, well, maybe I should use the opportunity to do an idea that's close to my heart. And this is an idea for a movie I had when I was 12. Wow. I've been thinking about it for many years. Uh, it was a bigger proposition, you know, big action-adventure movie for kids. And that's why I chose to do it, really. I just kind of loved it. Well, the, the one thing, especially uh, as an Irish audience, the one thing that came up as we were walking out, and I'm sure it's, it's come up for you as well, is Brexit over and over again. Right. Um, what, and you see the, the, the conversation about uh, England divided. Um, yes. Was that something that kind of, obviously it was, it was coming up as you were working on it? Because as you said, you've been working on this for a couple of mm. decades now. Mm. Um, did you lean into it knowing that it was potentially going to come to a head as this film was coming out, or was this purely accidental? Um, well, I think the interesting thing about the King Arthur myth or the sword in the stone myth is King Arthur turns up in a, in, in, in a Britain that's lost and leaderless and divided. Uh, all the different tribes are warring against each other. It's desperate for leadership. Mm-hmm. So that stuff is inherent in the myth. And however you tell it and wherever you tell it, you're going to touch on certain uh, socio-political things. Sure. This is a modernization of it. It's set in the contemporary world. And it just happens that some of those themes are particularly relevant now. Yeah. But I, I hope it's kind of timeless. You know, when I thought of it in the 80s, uh, there were things that kind of freaked me out about the grown-up world when I was 12. Like, there was the threat of nuclear war. Yeah. And Frankie goes to Hollywood in the charts. And um, when, if I went into the West End, there were terrorism warnings, you know. So if you're a kid, there's always a bit of a sense that the adult world is a slightly tricky place. And this is a very positive movie uh, telling kids that they can work together to overcome those issues. So whenever you tell the story, I think you'd find some sort of resonance. 
it, it is a positive story, but it is, it, it kind of harkened back to, I remember when I was watching uh, this kind of movie when I was that age, mm. and they were properly traumatising. There was, there was moments in films, with family films back in the yeah. day where it was like, that is mentally scarring, and I'm never going to forget <laughs> those moments. And there are moments like that in this film, and I was so happy to see it because you don't pull away from the scary stuff. And I think uh, family movies these days are... They're kind of scared to scare kids. But this does not pull away. Was there yeah. any argument there for I yourself? Mean, I have to say, I just came from a big screening in a cinema in Dublin, packed mm-hmm. full of 300 kids. And I said, was it scary? And they were all, no! <laughs> so they were tough kids. Yeah. But so, so I think it's just the right level of scary. So scariness to me means the villain feels like a real villain. There's a real sense of jeopardy. There's a real sense of threat. Also, when you set a story in the real world, that fantasy villain becomes more scary because mm. the villain is in a world you recognise. And you're right, they sort of don't make films like this anymore. Most movies for kids are animation, often glorified toy commercials. Yep. <laughs> a lot of them are um, superhero movies, you know, yep. or four-quadrant movies that are supposed to appeal to movie nerds like you and me and also little kids. So the sort of movies I grew up with where I could see a character of my own age in a live-action adventure in a world I recognised have sort of died off. Yeah. And it's kind of a miracle that we got to make one again on this scale. Do you, did you have a favourite uh, kind of kids' movie or family movie when you were growing up? Yeah, well, there were two. I saw a movie called The Black Stallion, right? Uh, which not many people have heard of, but it's one of the best kids' movies ever made, I think about a boy who is shipwrecked on a desert island. Uh, he's on, a, he's on a, an ocean liner. There's a, a, a stallion being transported as well, this beautiful racehorse. The ocean liner sinks. Uh, the horse and the boy get washed up on a desert island and they kind of form a bond. He takes the horse back to his house in middle America. Movie ends with an amazing horse race. Beautiful movie directed by Carol Ballard, shot by Caleb Dashnell, Zooey's dad, amazing cinematographer, produced by Coppola. It's a zoetrope movie. That's the first film I saw alone, and that had a massive impact on me because I was the same age as that kid, Mm. and it was a naturalistic movie with proper danger. So powerful. And then I'd say also E.T., because I was sort of the same age as Henry Thomas in E.T., and that, for the same reason, that, that really felt like I was living that story. Uh, just to bring it back to the villain for a second, Rebecca Ferguson is fantastic in this, really, really good. Um, and I, even as a grown-up, when she turned into the, the her her full self, let's say, yeah. it was like that's that's impressive. And I thought the kids would be scared, so I'm happy to hear the Dublin kids survived the uh, the screening. They liked it. But uh, is it true that she was filming your film the weekend while she was doing? Fallout during the week. Yeah, she so was, was she coming to you exhausted in black and blue, or just like uh, it's time we did the tree? Not only was Rebecca filming Mission Impossible Fallout on the next door stage, she was also pregnant. Oh well, uh, with her daughter, who's <coughs> subsequently arrived in the world. But they were they're really different parts. The part she plays in Fallout and this part, and she'd never played a villainess before mm. in a kids movie, and she's got kids of the right age for this film, so she was really excited to do it. She loved that she could be all evil and do a different type of performance. She was really interested in the, in the movement and the way she spoke. Um, so she's so gung-ho. She's such a fantastic person. She's really funny and friendly and smart and witty and just fantastic to be around. And I think, it were, I think she really liked the contrast between the two jobs. 
Um, when it comes to films like this as well, the, the, the aspect that can make it or break it for me would be how likeable the lead character is. Right. If they come across as too kind of precocious or, or too sarcastic, and it's just like, I can't get on board. Mm. Young Mr. Circus here is fantastic, really, really good. Um, what was it for you that you knew you're like, I can pin this movie on him? It was just the audition process, really. Um, he came in pretty late in the day. We saw thousands of kids. And we whittled it down to three or four actors who were pretty good. But then Louis came in at the last minute, and I guess he just has an emotional honesty that feels really true. And he doesn't have to try too hard. He's kind of gifted, I think, in that sense. And like you say, if, if a child actor is trying too hard, it can be a little bit cringy. And he's so natural, he's so relaxed, he's doing so much without speaking that, you know, I'm amazed by his performance. There's stuff in there that I see when I watch the movie that I didn't notice on the set. Little details about the way he performs lines. I think he's very gifted. Well, I think this would be the one that might properly propel him to the next level of, of, of stardom. And it wouldn't be your first time doing that with a young actor. Uh, you kind of helped the world uh, recognise the brilliance. That was John Boyega. Like, when you see the, the level of stardom he's achieved now, obviously he's a very talented actor by himself, but mm. do you have, like, a sense of pride where you're like... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the one that helped you give, give, give it that push. I'm definitely very proud of him. I think for an actor like that, you, you open a door for them and then they make their own way through it using their own talent. He's, a, he's an amazingly charismatic, talented guy. We just happen to be lucky enough for him to come through the doors in the casting process. But people with that kind of charisma, everybody sees it. We just mm. got to see it first kind of thing. Uh, but, yeah, I'm really proud. I'm proud of that whole cast. You know, lots of those actors have gone on to do great things. Uh, Michael Ajeo, who played Mayhem in that movie, is in a big play called The Fisherman that's in the West End. Daniel Vitalis, who played Tear, is about to be on TV screens in a drama about the Windrush generation. Jodie Whittaker's obviously done yeah. pretty well. Uh, Franz Drama's done really well. So loads of those kids have gone on to great things. It's, it's fantastic. And what... Jodie's not a kid, by the way. No, she's not. She's not. She's a yeah. fantastic actress, <laughs> yeah. though. Um, was it John who invited you on to be a, a stormtrooper? It was actually Ryan who invited me to be an extra in The Last Jedi, yeah. How uh, was that? That was great. In fact, that was the day of the Brexit vote. Oh. It was a stormy day, and we were in Pinewood. And, uh, yeah, that was the day the result came through. Um, but that was great to be involved in that movie. Uh, it's always kind of fantastic when there's that much kind of green screen involved to then see the finished thing, to see the actual... Because I didn't really understand what was happening in the show <laughs> or the scene. Um, when, it, when it comes to the blockbuster stuff, because you mentioned you had been kind of uh, offered some some big ones. Like, I have mm. written here, you're offered... You may or may not have been offered. You can just say they, mm. you were on. Uh, the Hunger Games 2, mm. uh, Skull Island, Star Trek mm. 3, Die Hard mm. 5, mm. Gambit. And, uh, like, they are... All huge. And whenever um, a big blockbuster like this comes up, your name gets thrown into the ring. Maybe it's just people who want you to direct it and kind of are wish-fulfilling. Hopefully, you'll be the guy to direct it. From your aspect, are you, are, do, do you kind of find it difficult to separate from, from that? Where, where it's like, guys, I'm, I'm actually not involved in this because then that might actually take your name out of the hat. Well, I, the first thing to say is I was approached about those movies. Whether I would have actually got them, sure. I don't know. But it's always very flattering to be asked to, to meet about them. 
Uh, and it's difficult not to, because it's such a sort of flattering and tantalising prospect. And then often you just take the first meeting and then suddenly Variety will publish that you're up for it. And then most of the time I decided I wasn't ready to do it because I'd only made one movie, mm. quite a low-budget movie, and taking <coughs> on a blockbuster like that is a big thing. It's a big yeah. machine. And in most of those cases, either I felt I, I wasn't the guy to do it in terms of my passion for the brand or I felt that I wasn't experienced enough and that I might get kind of... Um, I might be out of my depth, you know. Uh, but one of the nice things about The Kid Who Would Be King is it's a bigger scale movie, it's a bigger effects movie, it's got big action sequences. So I feel maybe a little more secure now, maybe, um, you know, to think, a bit, to think a bit harder about doing something like that. And for yourself as well, you, you didn't take on the bigger projects as a director, but you did move up in terms of size as a, as a writer, obviously, with Ant-Man and Tintin. Was that, is that easier for you to just kind of write or help write the script or co-write and then just pass it off knowing that it's no longer your problem? Well, both of those I wrote with Edgar. Yeah. So Edgar Wright invited me to co-write with him on both of those. So I feel very secure with Edgar. Sure. It's like going backpacking in Peru with your best friend <laughs> rather than on your own, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, so, and in fact... Both of those I wrote on before Attack the Block. So Ant-Man started, you know, long before Attack the Block. And Tintin came out just after, but was written while we were just before pre-production. Mm -hmm. um, it's always fun working with a friend, especially when that friend is Edgar. Yeah, it's very... It's a, it's a secure place to be. And with, with, with yourself and Edgar, um, do you, is there a... Is there a... Um, how could I, how do I put it? Like when it came to the Marvel stuff and everything that came on behind it and then Edgar having to pass it away, is that, is, is that difficult then to get back into? Like what, is, is the door still open with Marvel? Is it like still an open conversation to come back to Marvel or is that... Uh, man, I've been, I've had my head buried in this for the last four years. So I'm a, I watch their movies. I enjoy their movies. Uh, I've, I've no idea. I haven't. I don't know. I mean, the thing about that company is they've changed so much since we were first attached. You know, they mm -hmm. started out as a company that wanted auteur directors to sort of elevate comic book movies because when they started, comic book mov movies were not like the goldmine they are now. Yeah. They were kind of dismissed, weren't they? They weren't seen as significant players on the, you know, on the scene. And then... All during the period we wrote that movie, it changed and changed, and, and Favreau sort of cracked the formula, and then it got bigger and bigger. They invented the MCU. They decided they wanted to cross-pollinate the characters mm -hmm. and stuff. So by the time we came to make that movie, the requirements were totally different, and Edgar, you know, uh, quite rightly said, no, this isn't right for me anymore, and, and stepped away. So, so it's always changing, you know. Who knows what could happen? And in terms of any, any universe, any cinematic universe, or mm. any franchise, any sequel, any remake, mm. is there anything you'd like? Mm. That is absolutely what I would love to do. Well, the thing is, if I say that in your interview, then I'll <laughs> never hear the end of it. Um, I, there, there is stuff I'd like to do. I tell you what interests me quite a bit is Superman. Oh, yeah? Because I think, I think Henry Cavill is amazing. But, but, he's so but, underrated. He's so good in Fallout as well. But I feel they haven't cracked it. And yeah. I think it was too dark. And I think there's still room for that. I don't know whether I'm the guy to do it, but as a moviegoer, I feel I there's a Superman movie 
that I still haven't seen. Do you know what I mean? There is, there is definitely something left of Superman that, because I know there's, there's a very interesting graphic novel where they, they tell the story of what would have happened if Superman had crash landed in Russia huh. instead of America. And what they would have done with with that backstory then, instead of like him becoming an all American hero, like there's so many different aspects to it. But you are absolutely right. There's there's so much left to Superman still to tell. What can you tell me about Snow Crash? Well, that was a movie I wrote for Paramount immediately after Attack the Block. Amazing novel, big sort of cyberpunk adventure, and Paramount didn't go for it as a feature film, so we're working on it as a TV show. Mm. But that is still being written by a very brilliant writer called Michael Bacall, who wrote Scott Pilgrim oh, wow. and 21 Jump Street. Uh, so we're still working on that as a long-form TV show. Uh, when I told people I was coming to talk to you, there was, there was uh, two, two things I was asked to ask. One was, ask about Showgirls, and I feel, I feel yeah. we'll cover that. And the other was, have you heard anything about Tintin 2? I have not. No, I know as much or as little as you. I know uh, uh, Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg often talk about it, you know, they're both in love with the material, uh, but I do not know. I think it might it like might be somewhere in the future. I have no idea. I don't know. What would you like to win Best Picture at the Oscars this year? Well, that's a tough one. I would like Shoplifters by Coriada to win Best Picture. So go back, get it nominated, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. go forward again. I always nominate for stuff that <clears throat> never makes it through to the... I just think it's a bit demented, the Oscars. I, I, I like everything that's been nominated. I think it's a bit weird to choose... Between them, do you know what I mean? Uh, but 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 yeah, uh, Shoplifters I loved. Uh, there's a movie called Burning, yeah, which was incredible. Um, I thought, in terms of blockbusters, I thought Mission Impossible Fallout was one of the best of the oh, last so few years. Yeah. So my Oscars would be very different. But I, th- I think yours would be better, to be perfectly honest. Everything you said there was like, yep, I prefer that to some of the stuff that is actually yeah nominated. Um, and final question, what? is the correct punishment for anyone who talks on their phone in the cinema. Well, you know what? The cinema I just went to in Dublin was architecturally interesting. The, 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 the screens were boxes inside a big building. Yeah. So you could actually walk underneath the sloped floor. Yeah. And it was almost as if it had little panels where you could just literally drop somebody out of the bottom of the cinema. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So I would have light sensors... And if someone switched their phone on, literally a trapdoor would open beneath them and they would just be ejected from the cinema. <laughs> like that. And a little conveyor belt would just shove them out on the street. Well, it's, assuming they survived and just take, take them on out. Yeah, I would be very happy with that setup, wouldn't you? I would be, yeah. Like the, the ejection <laughs> system itself might cause some uh, distraction, especially you if it's someone you came on a date yeah. with and they're just rude and we're on the phone. Yeah. But they deserve. You don't want to be going out with that person. I absolutely don't. I absolutely <laughs> don't. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Good boy. to meet you, man. You too, buddy. Great. Hello, everybody. You're all very welcome back. It's um, the year 2048. Roy's <laughs> interview with Joe Cornish has just finished. We've all aged massively. Showgirls in Space did happen. It happened eight times. It came and went. <laughs> it's so you know, I know what I said. Uh, <laughs> um, so no, he is uh, genuinely a lovely man. Some lots of uh, some lots of interesting things there. Uh, you, the you've, you've aged stuff. so badly. You've lost <laughs> control. Of my the mind, language. my mind is going. My words do not work mind anymore. Mind is mush. Yeah. So, um, yeah, join us on the main episode of The Big Review Ski again. There'll be a new one out this week, and we'll see you again the following week. And, of course, there'll be loads more bonus. Bonus.
That was a good one. I like that one as well. <laughs> Features. Um, yeah, so that's bye-bye from Rory and bye-bye from me, Owen. We'll see you next time. Till then. All right, chapter. Lates. You're listening to The Big Reviewski on Joe. Brought to you by Omniplex Cinemas.